There are a lot of voices right now in the world. Uh, sometimes it can feel like uh, it's, it's really loud and it's pretty deafening. Uh, but this is a moment where we together can uh, turn down the noise in the world around us and hear the one cry of the scriptures and the Holy Spirit and creation itself that cries out, Christ be magnified. This is why we're here today, to worship our Lord. So as we turn our attention to scripture, I want to invite you uh, with me to turn our hearts towards God in prayer and worship to him. Father, look, the Christ said that the Spirit would come and that the Spirit would glorify the Son. Lord, we're turning our attention to the Bible now, and we know that it is the, the God-breathed Word. Men wrote it down, but it was carried along by the Holy Spirit so that what we have is your own very words. So, Lord, we pray that your Holy Spirit would speak to us today. We are sheep, and, and we need to hear the voice of our good shepherd. There's a lot of strange voices in our world that are leading us and directing us into strange paths, but we believe, as the scripture says in John 10, that you know us by name, that you call us out, that you lead us into eternal life. So would we clearly hear your voice, and would we hear that Christ is worthy of our magnification Thank you, Lord God, for uh, a beautiful Savior, a strong Savior, a courageous leader, a patient and loving God. And thank you that wherever we are today, we can gather with one heart and with one soul for one purpose to worship you. So, Lord, glorify your Son in our time through the Scriptures. In Jesus' name, amen. Hey, I've already got my Bible open to Acts chapter 6 verse 1 to 7, and wherever you are, whether it's a copy of the scriptures on your phone or whether it's through the feature in the live stream platform where you're following along with the Bible or whether it's a physical scripture, let's all get our Bibles open to Acts chapter 6, verse 1 to 7. Usually we like to say thanks for joining us and coming together for uh, worship, but I'd like to say thanks for inviting us into your home so that we together as the body of Christ, wherever we are, whatever time we're watching this, thanks for inviting us in so that we can worship the Lord together. Acts chapter 6, verse 1 to verse 7 is our text today. You know, in the story of uh, the book of Acts, uh, we're going to see a lot of pretty dramatic stories of amazing change that happens as the message of the gospel spreads throughout the world in the first century. It started in Jerusalem and transformed individuals there and was transforming the whole city. It would uh, spread out into other cities across the world, different types of cities, into a, uh, an academic and philosophical city like Athens. And it would transform that city and individuals in it. People who were uh, worshiping countless and countless amount of idols would uh, turn from their idols to worship the true living Savior Jesus. It would go into other cities like Ephesus. Ephesus was an economic powerhouse. And uh, it would transform individuals in that. And this transforms the society so much that idol makers were put out of business because people weren't worshiping their idols anymore. They were worshiping Jesus. It would go into cities like Philippi. Philippi was um, a military, a strategic military city. 
And it transformed an individual in Philippi who was an old, retired, hardened military vet who kind of cold to the world, but it transformed that individual to be a loving and kind and gentle family man through faith in Jesus. The transformation was dramatic. So dramatic that in Acts chapter 17, verse 6, they said about the people who came into their city with the gospel, uh, those who turned the world upside down have come here as well. In a little way, maybe not a little way, maybe in a dramatic way, it kind of feels like the world's been turned upside down recently with the current events that we're experiencing. This is just a, a, a few weeks that we've been in this circumstance. But for centuries, the message of Jesus has been dramatically changing and transforming individuals and cities. But it could have stopped real short. It started in Jerusalem and went throughout the rest of the world, but it could have, at a moment, here in this text, In this story that we're considering today, it could have been halted right there. This is the fourth instance in the book of Acts where we're going to see the church threatened. On two occasions, it was threatened by people outside of the church, malicious people who just wanted to hurt Christians and stop their message. But for the second time now, we see the threat come against the church that could have stopped the movement of the gospel right there from misguided people inside the church. But by the grace of God, we see the church thrive even through a threat. And that's, uh, that's the message that we need to learn today. Even through a threat, the church can still thrive. Today's message is going to show us two godly choices that the church made to be able to thrive within the threat they experience, and the two positive outcomes that came as a result of the godly choices that they made. That's what we're going to learn. How can we thrive in the midst of a threat? What godly choices do we need to make and what positive outcomes can come as a result of that? So I'm going to read the passage of scripture now, Acts chapter 6, verse 1 to 7. This is God's word, and it speaks to us today, and, and this is what it says. Now in these days, when the disciples were increasing in number, A complaint by the Hellenists arose against the Hebrews because their widows were being neglected in the daily distribution. And the twelve summoned the full number of disciples and said, It is not right that we should give up preaching the word of God to serve tables. Therefore, brothers, pick out from among you seven men of good repute, full of the spirit and of wisdom, whom we will appoint to this duty. But we will devote ourselves to prayer and the ministry of the word. And what they said pleased the whole gathering, and they chose Stephen, a man full of faith and of the Holy Spirit, and Philip, and Prochorus, and Nicanor, and Timon, and Parmenas, and Nicolaus, a proselyte of Antioch. These they set before the apostles, and they prayed and laid their hands on them. And the word of God continued to increase, and the number of disciples multiplied greatly in Jerusalem. And a great number, a great many of priests became obedient to the faith. 
even in a threat, the church can still thrive. So what were the two choices that they made here that they had to make in order to thrive in this threat? Well, the first one is that they chose to make wrongs right. When it says in the text, now in these days, the disciples were increasing in number, it was kind of like, I don't know, maybe the golden age that you might say of the church in Israel at this time. It wasn't like the church declined and was never the same ever again, but there was this robust unity that every generation since this generation has uh, seen as the model of what they desire in church. In these days, the gospel was just thriving. The church in Jerusalem had grown from 120 followers to, at this point, 10,000 plus disciples. The unity of the church was thriving. People were voluntarily selling their possessions. They were giving the funds to the apostles and the funds were being distributed to anyone who had need. But the threat they experienced attacked in the very way that they were thriving. See, apparently... um, the native Jews who were in the church at that time, called the Hebrews, the native Jews who were born in Israel were responsible for uh, feeding the widows in their community who couldn't provide for themselves on a daily basis. But the Hellenists, these are nat- uh, excuse me, foreign Jews, uh, people who worshipped the God of the scriptures but were born in countries outside of Israel, these foreign Jews... Notice that the native Jews were not giving food to foreign widows. They were actually intentionally neglecting these foreigners. Now think about the human impact of this, all right? 10,000 plus people in this community. There was a high population of widows during this time. In a crowd of thousands, how long would it have taken to notice that a simple oversight was actually intentional neglect? How many days were these vulnerable elderly women left to starve without food because of intentional neglect? Kind of sounds like elder abuse, doesn't it? Not just elder abuse, kind of sounds a little bit like racism, doesn't it? Well, it likely was. In the church, people were abusing elders and people were acting racist and leaving vulnerable people to starve. I'm, I'm not doing any travel now, obviously, as none of us really are, but when I do like to travel, I like to travel light. Um, and I always find myself a better packer of my luggage on my way out, on my journey out to travel than on my journey home. On my journey out, I have all my clean clothes, and I want to keep them clean, and I want to keep them not wrinkled, so I fold them very gently, I pack them very firmly, and I'm able to close my luggage and my baggage uh, very seamlessly with room, and it's really light. On my way home, though, I'm not so 
careful because my clothes aren't any longer clean. I just want to get them in the bag, get them in the car, and go home. So I don't fold them nicely and pack them firmly. I just throw them in a ball and throw them in and kind of left it like press it down firmly. And maybe I'll like, you know, with it's like with the zipper and that, like struggle to pull the zipper around. And when I get home, if I can actually get the zipper open again without breaking it, it just like pops open, falls onto my, my bed, and there's not a very pleasant smell to it. There was a, some dirty baggage that was being unloaded in the church here with these tension between the native Jews and the foreign Jews. You see, the native Jews, uh, before they turned to faith in Jesus, grew up in Jerusalem, likely under the instruction of the religious group called the Pharisees. And the Pharisees were that sect of uh, uh, Jewish people who Jesus criticized all the time for being hypocritical. The Pharisees were obsessed in a way that God wasn't interested in. They were obsessed with being pure. And the Pharisees taught their people that if they were native-born Jews, they were just a little bit more pure than the foreign-born Jews. So their whole life, these foreign-born Jews grow up in a culture and grow up in a society where they're told that these people are a little bit more filthy than you are. Now, these people who grew up in the teaching of the Pharisees, when they turned to put their faith in Jesus, they were totally forgiven, completely accepted. But it shouldn't be surprising that they still brought in with them to their new community some of their old baggage. And it shouldn't be surprising when I do that and when you do that. It shouldn't be surprising that we wrong each other in the church. This could have dramatically threatened the unity and mission of the church. But by the grace of God, they made a godly choice. They chose to make wrongs right after wrong happened. See, everyone who puts their faith in Jesus is totally forgiven, is completely accepted. But we all carry, we all carry baggage from our old life. We all carry baggage based on previous religions that we are a part of, based on uh, broken marriage, based on substance abuse and addictions and the way other people's hurt us. And hurt people hurt people. But when wrongs happen, it's good to make it right. What matters in the church isn't our nationality. It isn't our income. It isn't our gender. See, the gospel creates a new type of humanity that's reflected after the true human Jesus Christ, and it creates a new type of community that is bond together in the Holy Spirit. What counts in the church is faith working through love. But still in the church, in a new community, formed after the new humanity reflecting the nature of Jesus Christ, wrong happens. But when wrong happens, the godly choice is to make it right. When hurt happens, when we wrong each other, we need to expose it, own it, 
bury it and endure it. When you're wronged against, or if you are the one who wrongs others, you need to expose it. You need to tell someone that you did the wrong and don't try and defend it. And if you're wronged against, uh, you need to follow the pattern of Matthew 18 and show someone the way that you've been hurt. We need to expose it in love and then we need to own it. Not defending ourselves, not making excuses, owning it. But then the godly thing to do that makes forgiveness, really forgiveness, is to bury it. Forgiveness isn't forgiveness if you leave a festering corpse um, rotting above the ground. Forgiveness is forgiveness when we put it six feet under. But uh, Jesus taught us that we need to forgive not just seven times. If we were wronged in the same way, he said, seven times in a day, do I have the right then to not forgive them? And Jesus said, no, 70 times seven. That doesn't mean that the the limit is 490 times, that seven is a symbolic uh, term that means uh, it's a completeness, wholeness. In the worst way that you are completely hurt, you you still need to forgive. So we need to expose it, own it, bury it, but endure it. Because even after someone apologizes and owns it, they can still hurt us again. We can still hurt others again. But love covers a multitude of sins. Love bears all things, believes all things, hopes all things, and endures all things. It's easy to want to just cut and split after hurt happens. That's the easy decision. It's the comfortable decision. It's the convenient decision. But it's not the decision that reflects the gospel. That's not what Christ did with you. We constantly sin against God. But God's name is his reputation. And his name is a name that is gracious and merciful, slow to anger, abounding in steadfast love and forgiveness. In the same way that God has forgiven us, we need to be ready to forgive others. And you know, we actually, we kind of see evidence of this in this text. After verse one, and we see the hurt that happens, verse two, we see what, how they try and resolve it. Verse two says, and the 12 summoned the full number of disciples. You pause there. Part of the full number of disciples, the native Jews were exposed as being um, racist elder abusers. And now the apostles call them all together. And what we see is them actually able then to work together. We don't see a church split like here's the native Jews on the one side and the foreign Jews on the other side. We don't see here's the first church of Jerusalem of the Hellenists and the second church of Jerusalem of the Hebrews. We don't see them split and go off into another city. We see them able to come together again and actually find a real solution. And this is the beauty of what the gospel is able to do. It honors Christ when we choose to do everything we can to make things right after wrong has happened. Even when we're threatened 
by our own sin and through our own baggage, we can still thrive when we choose to make wrongs right. So if you've been wronged against, don't just cut and split. That's not what Christ has done for you. He is faithful to you even when you are faithless. When wrong has happened to you, do everything you can to make it right. That will allow the unity of the church to remain intact and it will allow the mission of the church to continue to spread. Even through a threat, the church can still thrive when we choose to make wrongs right. They were able to make things right and they can actually now move forward and figure out how to solve this problem. So remember, there were two godly choices they made. The first was they chose to make wrongs right, and the second is that they chose to serve, to put into action the practical um, effort that needed to be done so that the heart and soul of the church could remain intact and everyone could be provided according to their needs. Let's look at the text and we'll see how this happens. Verse 2 says, And the twelve summoned the full number of disciples and said, It is not right that we should give up the preaching of the word to serve tables. Therefore, pick brothers, pick out from among you seven men of good repute, full of the spirit and of wisdom, whom we will appoint to this duty. But we will devote ourselves to prayer and the ministry of the word. And what they said pleased the whole gathering. And they chose Stephen, a man full of faith and of the Holy Spirit, and Philip, and Proconus, and Nicanor, and Timon, and Parmenas, and Nicolaus, a proselyte of Antioch. These they set before the apostles, and they prayed and laid their hands on them. So it seemed that this, this um, issue, this threat was so severe that the people thought that, okay, here, what needs to happen is that you, you apostles, you need to be directly involved. And the apostles heard that idea, and it says was displeasing to them. They didn't think that was right. So they knew it was an important task, but they knew that there was another important task that they couldn't give up. So the apostles created an organizational structure and entrusted their authority to other qualified people so the job could get done. Now, a lot of people are put off by the idea of church. And of the many reasons that people are put off of the idea of church, um, one of the top ones is that they really disdain the idea of organized religion. So far, it seems like everything that's happening has been very organic. They're just meeting in each other's homes. They're meeting in a public place. They're selling their properties. It's just, it's very, it's very open. It's very organic. But now this is the first time that structure is actually put in place. But structure... Structure sometimes is, is, is really needed. Um, I've never been a gardener. I'd like to try sometime. My family, when I was a child, uh, had a uh, vegetable garden. Some uh, vegetables that you grow in a garden have enough structure within the DNA itself that it can easily grow up and um, the structure of the plant can hold the weight of the vegetables without falling down. Some other vegetables don't have enough structure in themselves, and if they don't have an exterior structure, the plant will just wilt and won't grow, like tomatoes. A tomato needs a trellis. 
so that as the vine grows, the vine can attach to another structure so the weight of the tomatoes doesn't hold the vine down, so that it can grow up and it can be fruitful and produce yummy vegetables. Or tomatoes or fruit, I forgot that. Let's argue about that some other time. The point is that structure is needed sometimes um, for more growth to happen. People can confuse structure and organization for just being layers of protection that uh, keeps the, those in positions of power within their authority and, and not doing jobs that they think are beneath them. That's not what's happening here. The apostles are actually giving us an exemplary model of what godly leadership looks like. They put structure in place so that they can maintain what they know is priority for the church, and they can entrust their authority. They're not trying to hold their authority. They're not trying to protect their power. They entrust their authority to other qualified people to do this important task. See, they didn't actually think that this work was beneath them. They knew that their work was the foundation beneath the generosity that enabled widows to be able to be cared for. See, there were seven people who were asked to serve the widows, but the apostles themselves knew that they were also called to serve, but in a different way. And let me show you through the text. Verse 2, the disciples are told, it is not right that we should give up the preaching of the word to serve tables. That's the thing that the apostles says they don't want to do. They don't want to serve tables. But the thing they do want to do, that they want to be devoted to, is in verse 4, we will devote ourselves to prayer and the ministry of the word. These two words, in verse 2, serve, and verse 4, ministry, are actually the same root idea, just expressed in different ways. It's the same thing that Jesus taught all disciples, all followers to do, in Luke chapter 22, verse 26 to 27. In that passage, Jesus says this, let the greatest among you become as the youngest, and the leader as one who serves. For who is greater, one who reclines at table or ones who serves? Right? Think about at the restaurant, right? Who's the person that's deserving of the more attention? Is it the one who's holding the glass of water and uh, putting it into the glass and bringing the food, or is it the one who's holding the glass and receiving the water and uh, receiving the food. The structure that is built up at a restaurant is built to put the focus on the patron, on the person who's getting the food, not on the waiter. They're just there for the sake of the other person. But Jesus saw himself as the waiter, not the patron. Jesus saw himself as the servant, not the one who deserves to be served. He says, is it not the one who reclines at table, but I am among you as one who serves? Everyone is called to serve. The apostles were entrusting their authority to qualified men to serve widows with food, but they, in the ministry of the word and prayer, were serving the church and nourishing them with the word of God and interceding on their behalf. Every Christian is called to serve. Every Christian is called to contribute to the church in a meaningful way with the gifts that God has given them. Are you contributing to the body of Christ? 
Are you serving others in the way that God has called you to serve? See, taking the gospel preaching away from the church, like the people were asking the disciples to do, or asking the apostles to do, is like siphoning the gas out of a car. Taking prayer out of the church is like ripping the spark plugs out of a car engine. If you want generosity to happen, true generosity, radical generosity, that is attractive and appealing and unique amongst our world, you need the foundation of the gospel preaching and prayer underneath of it. See, it's not just 12, it's not just 12 apostles and the seven other qualified men who are called to serve. Every single Christian is called to serve. First Peter chapter 4, verse 10 says, As you have received a gift, so use it as good stewards of God's varied grace. As the one who serves with the strength that God provides. As one who speaks as speaking the very oracles like it's the very message of God. Everyone is called to be faithful with the gift that God has given them for the good of the church. Are you choosing to serve the body of Christ? And we see here kind of like a profile of the person that God wants to use. So the qualification for these seven is a good example for all of us for how we should all be serving. Verse three, they're told what the qualifications are. Therefore, pick brothers, pick out from among you seven men of good repute, qualification one, full of the spirit, qualification two, and of wisdom whom we will appoint to this duty. I think these um, two qualifications, one and three, having a good reputation and having wisdom, a good reputation is that you've got integrity, like you're the same wherever you are. You're not one way at church and one way at work and one way in uh, school and one way at home and one way at self-isolation quarantine and one way in front of your boss. You're the same wherever you are. Good reputation. F f wisdom. Wisdom is the uh, biblical discernment to be able to recognize right from wrong, choose right, lead others in the right way, and to not waver your judgment based on bias or prejudice. I believe both of these two qualifications really um, flow out of the second one that's mentioned, uh, being full of the Spirit. Are you a Christian who is living a life that is full of the Spirit? Sometimes we can complicate what this means. And let's try and make this really simple, all right? I'm pretty sure that you've had a conversation with someone, and at the end of that conversation, your reaction was like, man, that guy is really full of himself. You know what you mean when you say that, right? We say he's arrogant. He's, he's puffed up. He thinks so highly of himself. It's like his way or the highway and no other way, and he won't listen to anyone else's opinions. To be full of the Spirit is to be empty of yourself, not consumed with yourself, but consumed with the way that God, the Spirit wants to lead you in following Jesus Christ. To be full of the Spirit is to be yielded to the Spirit's guidance in every area of life. Yielded in your finances. Yielded 
in the words that you speak, yielded in the thoughts that you think, yielded in the entertainment that you watch, yielded in the job that you pick, yielded in the relationships that you have and the people, person that you want to date, every area of life. And I still want to be more yielded to the Holy Spirit. I know there are ways that I am still full of myself and not full of the Spirit. But when you see a person who is full of the Spirit, and you see the way that you, he lives, you see that the mind and their desires and their way that they live is totally emptied of themselves, and their lifestyle reflects the way that Jesus lived. They're living a Galatians 2.20 life. Galatians 2.20 says, I have been crucified with Christ. I'm, I'm empty of myself. I have been crucified with Christ. It is no longer I who live, but Christ who lives in me. In the life I live in the flesh, I live by faith in the Son of God who loved me and gave himself up for me. Is that the life you're seeking to live? No longer me. I'm living by faith in Jesus because I know that he loves me. I don't need to earn other people's love. I don't need to prove to myself that I'm somebody. I know who I am because I am who I am in Christ. So I'll empty myself of him, yield myself to the Spirit to lead me in a way that reflects the life of Jesus. That's the person who God uses. Now maybe you know that you're not filled with the Spirit. Maybe you know that you're emptied of him and filled with yourself. I can I just give you a word of encouragement? Christian, even if you're not living a life that's full of the Spirit, God still has a full measure of grace for you. The fullness of grace can never be emptied by your sin. Grace will always abound over your sin. And God's love for you will not be emptied even if you're not full of the Spirit. Romans chapter 5 verse 20 says, where sin increases, grace abounds all the more. Grace is an invitation. An invitation to no longer live for yourself, but live with real meaning and real purpose, giving up your life and up your way to the one who gave up his life for you. That's the person who God is ready to use that's the person God wants to use to serve others. And these people, these, these seven men were exceptionally used by God. Stephen, the first man listed. Yeah, he served tables, but he was a powerful apologist. An apologist is someone who can defend the faith with logic and reason and clear arguments to show the truthfulness of our faith. The next passage, we're going to see him doing that in a very powerful way. And we're going to see that he actually... He lost his life for it. The next guy, Philip. Philip was an evangelist. Philip went from town to town to town telling people about Jesus, and he was so influential that he wasn't just helpful to the cities, but his family as well. His daughters, he had daughters who were so filled with the word of God that they themselves spoke the word of God wherever they went to. See, these people weren't just used in this way, but they were used in many ways, and God wants to use you as well. Grace is an invitation for you to turn away from your own, own way and to turn to following Christ's way. That's the person that God uses.
2 Timothy chapter 2, verse 22 says, if anyone cleanses himself from what is dishonorable, he uh, will be a vessel for honorable use, set apart as holy, useful to the master of the house, ready for every good work. Sometimes I clearly know the ways that God wants to use me. Sometimes I don't know. But when God needs someone, when God needs his like uh, utility uh, tool, his, um, his multi-tool that he can use for any task at any time, he uses people who are filled with the Spirit. And he can use you as well. He wants to use you. He can use us for in unity together and in our witness to the world when we choose to make wrongs right and when we choose to serve in a meaningful way living a life that is filled with the Spirit. God wants to use you that way. These were the choices that they made, and now we get to see the outcomes. Man, it's really, really beautiful to see the great way that the gospel just renews and restores and refreshes these people. Verse 5 is interesting. There's something implicit here that's not clearly noticeable that shows something really beautiful. That shows the first outcome of their two godly choices. Verse 5. And what they said pleased the whole gathering, and they chose Stephen, a man full of faith in the Holy Spirit. Stephen is um, not a native Jewish name. It's a foreigner's name. Philip, also a foreigner's name. Prochorus, also a foreigner's name. Do you see where I'm going with this? All seven people who the church picked and put before the disciples were people with foreign Jewish names. Now it was the native Jews, the Hebrews, who were mistreating the elders and acting in a racist way towards them. The, the, the apostles gave no instructions that the seven should be foreign or the seven should be natives, but the church decided to put seven foreigners forward for this task. We're not told the reason why, but we see the result of their decision. We see the result of grace. The sin of some people wanted to tear down foreigners, but grace lifted them up. The sin of some people threatened to fracture the unity of the church, but grace mended their unity together. When Christians expose our sin, own our sin, bury our sin, and endure our sin, through the grace of God, it, it can restore unity and breathe a refreshing breath of air into the church. That's the first godly outcome that we see of their two godly choices. The church was restored and refreshed, and God can do that with our church. You may be in a place where you feel hurt right now. You may be in a place where you feel torn apart or pushed down, but by the grace of God, you can be lifted up. The grace of God and the gospel is able to do this when we forgive one another in the way that Jesus Christ has forgiven us. The church here was restored and refreshed. The second godly outcome that we see is that their city was reached and renewed. A really cool implicit thing that we see that's as well in verse six, in verse, or excuse me, in verse seven. It says, and the word of God continued to increase. Really cool. 
The, it was increasing at the beginning. It was threatened by their misguided behavior, but because they made godly choices, kept increasing. And the number of disciples multiplied greatly in Jerusalem. And here's a really cool example of some of the people that were reached and renewed. And a great many of priests became obedient to the faith. So you remember, we've learned in past weeks that the high priests were the people who had control over the way that the people who lived in Jerusalem lived. They controlled the political courts. They controlled the religious establishment. Like they defined the high priests, what mainstream, mainstream culture was in Jerusalem. And these priests weren't the high priests. They were lower level priests. But they, they would have been the people who would have been most loyal to the high priests. But we see these people who are most loyal to this ungodly, hypocritical, unjust culture turning away and following Jesus. The most loyal people. You know what this shows me? That the, the grip of unrighteousness and injustice in this city was loosening. The city was being reached. The culture was being restored. And man, God can do that in our city as well. God can mend what's broken in our church so that we have unity together. God can keep us united together so that we can be effective together in our mission into the world. We can reach people who are most loyal to the ways that our world is right now. And you know the way that the world lives. You know the ways that our culture is turning and turning away from what used to be a biblical foundation. And I want to have sympathy and love for the world and the culture around us. And even those people who seem farthest off, this passage shows they're not farthest off. Do you want to see this happen in Markham? Do you want to see this happen in the GTA? Then we need to make these godly choices. We need to be resolved that when wrongs happen, we'll do everything we can to make it right. We need to be resolved that we are going to be people because of the good grace of God who are going to live our lives filled with the Spirit so that we're ready to serve in any way that the church needs. But what if we don't make those choices? What if we choose to leave wrongs left not right? What if we choose to let someone else serve? Well, I think then the church will kind of become like um, milk left unrefrigerated. If we left, leave sin lingering in our relationships not reconciled, if we choose not to serve and not to contribute and just to be a consumer, the unity of our church is gonna spoil. And when the unity of the church spoils, the witness of the church will sour. And we will have nothing appealing and nothing attractive that the world will want. The gospel changes that. The gospel of grace is our motivation to be united together to make wrongs right. The gospel of grace is the motivation to no longer live for myself, but to live for the one who died and lived for me. For the sake of our mission, for the sake of our unity, brothers and sisters in Christ, let's be resolved to choose to make wrongs right Let's be resolved to choose to serve. And when we do, we will see our church restored and refreshed. 
we will see our cities reached and renewed, and we, we will see the name of Jesus magnified and honored in the way it deserves. I want to take a no- moment now to pray. I want to invite you to do that with me. Father in heaven, thank you for the good grace of Jesus Christ. There's no other motivation for this church to, to keep associated with uh, racist people who intentionally abuse elders. I know if that was me, I'd want to just put them out and want nothing to do with them and just for, treat them like enemies. But that's not what we see in this church, God. We see that your Holy Spirit guided them to love and forgiveness. We see that your grace reigned and allowed to make wrongs right and allowed them to work in unity together to serve. We saw them able to thrive when threats happened, Lord God. Father, would you help us to be conscious to recognize that sometimes the threat uh, isn't out, often the threat isn't just outside of us. The threat isn't just our circumstances or what's happening in the world. The threat isn't people who are antagonistic towards our message. Would you help us to recognize that we ourselves can be a cause to this? And would this teach us humility, Lord God? Would you help us to grow in grace, to make wrongs right, to be ready to serve? And God, would you restore us and refresh us? And would you see the gospel reach and renew our city? In Jesus' name, amen.